I don't know why Warren's trying to throw shade about me spoiling movies. Look, here's the deal. You got one year after a movie comes out before I'm allowed to use it for sermon material. You haven't watched it in a year, like, it's up for grabs, okay? All of them are older than a year, so there you go. We'll get to that later. Um, so uh, I got this story. This is the first time I went backpacking, and uh, my old wrestling coach, he took me and my, my, one of my best friends at the time, Matt, and he's like, hey, we're going to go backpacking. The name of the trail is called Hell's Gate Wilderness. First red flag. Second red flag, we went in a pretty warm time season, so it was like hot. And he said, look, you got to carry enough water to get through the first day. We're going to hike into a canyon. At the bottom will be some rivers, and we could refill our water there. So bring enough for that first day is what I thought. Second mistake. Hike down into the canyon, and we got everything on our backs. We get in this beautiful area of northern Arizona, and it's got these two rivers meeting, and it's just absolutely gorgeous. And we get down to our campsite, set up, and then we use some of our water, and then we go down to the river to refill and to filter out the water. But it had had flash flooded a few days before, and so the rivers were filled with this, like, mud, silty substance. Right. And so we could not actually filter the water out. It would clog up the filtration system. So the option was either drink the water that you have for that day and get up and hike home and try to make sure you have enough or drink the muddy, silty water and hope that you don't end up with Jardia in like 30 minutes. And so we had a fun time that night, got up in the morning and then me and my buddy, Matt, were like, Hey, we're young and spry. Like, We'll be fine. Mistake number three. And so we started hiking and we didn't think about, hey, if you're hiking into the bottom of a canyon the first day, then on the second day, you're going to be hiking out of the canyon. Yep, exactly. Yep. Somebody else has been hiking. Maybe like one of you. Uh, So we, we hike out and it is really hot and we're really thirsty. And then we get lost from the rest of our crew. And so we decided, you know, we're probably just too far ahead. So let's just sit under this tree and wait for them. So me and my friend Matt are sitting there baking under this tree. And I think he has like a 30 minute conversation with me that I didn't even hear. I think like 40 minutes go by and I'm like, what? We're delirious. We get up and we go, let's just stumble back to the car because we know there's water in the car. So we finally get our way out of the forest. We find, we could see the car as we're going down the mountain And we realized that because we were ahead of the rest of the crew and they're nowhere to be found, we didn't bring keys to the car. Still no water. Don't worry. Doesn't end badly. So then we look when we get to the edge of the trailhead and there before us is a horse trough filled with water and a spigot. Yes. We run to the end of it, plunge our faces into this horse trough of water, slurping up probably 90% horse saliva, (laughs) come out of the water and are satisfied. Here's the point of that story. You need to drink water. And there are certain truths about life that you can become so familiar with that you begin to take them for granted. Like, who do you think understands water more? Hydro flask Monday morning in the office, Jake, or horse trough, Jake? Horse trough, Jake. Horse trough, Jake, understands that you need to drink 
water. And there are many truths like that in the church that we've become so familiar with that we almost forget them. Like Jesus died for you. That's the entire sermon point. I know. And I know you're like, we woke up Memorial weekend, (laughs) came to church for this. Like they, he's had weeks (laughs) to prepare this thing. They, we're going to tie it to another church. Um, that's the point of the sermon. Jesus died for you. And my prayer is that maybe before we pause and head into Nehemiah next week and change it up before we come back to John, that this story of Jesus, where he is looking to the cross and telling us what it means, my prayer is that it would be a horse trough moment for us all. As the church, we would have a moment together where we would go like, maybe I've forgotten or not really taken the gravity of Jesus died for me, which is impossible for me to do as a preacher. So let's pray. Bow your heads with me. Close your eyes. Take a moment of stillness before we open up God's word. Pray right now that God would open up the word to you, to you, not the person next to you to you. And Jesus, I pray, and you can pray with me too in your hearts that you would allow me the gift of teaching to, yeah, allow myself to fade away and for us only to be able to see you, Jesus, standing here clothed in the Holy Scriptures that we might worship you. Amen. We're going to be in John 12. Verse 27 is where we're going to begin. So if you want to follow along in your Bible, go ahead and open up there. I got to get my voice because I was singing too hard too. I'm like, I lose it and drink some water. So it says, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me for this hour, from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. We are still in the same spot where we were last week when John preached and a group of Greeks, not ethnic Jews, came up to Jesus and Jesus is in the crowd while he's waiting to celebrate Passover and he's getting this distant look in his eye as he begins to talk and contemplate his own death. And he is still here with everyone listening to him after he has described his hour that is about to come as this grain of wheat falling and dying that much life might come. And it is in this moment that Jesus says, now is my soul troubled weighted, depressed, overwhelmed, suffocating with the weight in other gospels, bleeding out of his pores. He says, now is my soul troubled because for Jesus, the cross is not a tattoo on some girl's ankle or a figure. Sorry, if you got that tattoo, I think it's awesome. (laughs) Just thought of that. I was like, that's mean. Um, I'm sorry. The point is, 
we have made the cross into a religious icon for good reason and a symbol for good reason, while at the same time it becomes overfamiliar to us. Whereas Jesus, the cross was more akin to us taking somebody that we know in our justicism is falsely accused, pulling them off of death row to put them on the electric chair and then publicly televising it so that everyone in their family might see. But instead of killing them quickly, we drag out the electrocution for hours and days, only pausing to spit on them and mock them. Horrifying. The cross for Jesus was something the image would have made you throw up. Not a religious icon that you're like, hmm. Yet for the church, it somehow has become this. And I want us to ask why. Jesus died to reveal God to you. Jesus died for you. And the first part of this is that he might reveal God to you. He says, what should I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, the whole point that Jesus comes to the cross is that father glorify your name. Glory. What is glory? One of those phrases where if you were to find me in my office before this week and you asked me, Jake, what is the glory of God? I'd be like, yeah, you know, it's like, it's when God is glorified. You know, he's like high and lifted up or something. He's, 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 he's glorious. That's what it is. He's glorious. It, it, the, the word glory is one of those words where we assume we know the meaning and then you don't really ask. And so you might become too familiar. It's, it's like somebody introducing you, themselves to you and they, they use a name you've never heard before and you hear it, but you don't really hear it. So you just kind of politely wait to see if everybody else will say their name before you ask again, but then nobody says their name. And so you're just sitting there for hours going like, I don't know their name. Now too much time has passed. I can't ask them their name anymore. It's going to be super rude. And then you go on into infinity and you don't even know this person's name who is now your friend, but you don't ask because that's what glory is like for us. Glory, and now I've looked up and some smarter people, is the visible splendor of God. It is the visible manifestation of who God is. All of his beauty and what he truly is like is his glory. When Moses in the book of Exodus asks asks God, show us your glory. God says, I will pass in front of you, literally come in front of you. And I will pronounce my goodness to you. It is like a husband and wife on their wedding night having that first intimate moment. And in that moment of exposing themselves in their nakedness, saying, this is all of who I am to you. That's what the cross is. It is the fullest expression of God saying to the world, this is who I am. Look at the cross. Jesus, who knows the horror of the cross, knows what it's about to cost him, still cannot help but pray, Father, glorify your name. Because the Father and Jesus are so set on you seeing who Jesus and who God actually is. 
The glory of God is displayed in the cross, meaning you get to see who God really is. And it is so celebrated and affirmed that as Jesus says this, it says a voice came from heaven in verse 28. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there heard it and said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel had spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. The father is so in that moment proud of his son, Jesus, that he says, yes. And every inch of Jesus' life has been glorifying and putting on display who God is from the beginning. And the next moment that he goes to the cross, God will glorify his name again. The most beautiful revealing of who God is, is Jesus on the cross. But how could the crowd miss that, right? A thundering voice from heaven says, like says that to them. And some of them are like, is it storming out? <laughs> and some of them are like, new age spirituality. They're like, oh, maybe an angel. They, 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 how do you miss something like that in that moment? Because voices from heaven are never enough to reveal God to a broken world like ours. Only the cross will. Only the cross can reveal God in his fullest beauty. So then how could something so horrifying that would make you throw up reveal something so beautiful? There's actually a lot of examples in this even built into the fabric of nature. I mean, when it comes to watching uh, TV and movies, my wife's the one who loves the animal movies. Like one dog could die and she'll be weeping. 10 people could die and she's like, eh. And like, but when it comes to like the, the animals, she's got that connection to them. And so we'll watch things together. We watch this documentary. I don't know if you've seen it. It's called The Octopus Teacher. And at first when I was watching, I was like, this looks beautiful, the ocean. But as it started going on, I'm telling they're trying to like make me have this emotional connection to an octopus. I'm like, no. And as I'm watching, they get me. (laughs) They got me. You see, the guy has been swimming for years with this octopus, watching it, observing it. And then this moment where he goes, and then I knew because I knew about the life life stages of octopi. The first one I said octopuses, but that's not the right word. Octopi, that she was about to give birth and I knew what that would mean. And I'm like, what does that mean? <laughs> so you watch and this octopus gives birth to its den of all these eggs and then it stays at the front of the den to protect them, does not leave and begins to starve to death using the only energy that she has to blow fresh water over the eggs to make sure that they are healthy and alive. And then you get to the end and, you know, you're weeping because you see the body of this octopus disintegrate and blow away because this octopus gave her life so that her children might thrive. The cross is like that. 
it is horrifying and beautiful. It is the worst day in human history and the best day. It is the day that reveals who God truly is. Now, let me ask church, what lie are you believing about God? Because you have forgotten to look at the cross. When your kids begin to walk away from the faith, despite how much you've tried to care for them, do you think that God does not care about pursuing because you have forgotten to look at the cross? When you see your family member tied up in addiction and it's tearing apart their life and you begin to entertain the idea that maybe God doesn't care about the brokenhearted, look at the cross. When you see your friends and your family members get hurt because of injustice and you begin to question, does God care about justice? Look at the cross. You want to know what God thinks about you? Look at the cross. You want to know what he thinks about the brokenness of our world? Look at Jesus as he hangs on the cross. Jesus died for you to reveal God to you. But he also died on the cross to defeat the one who told us the lies about God in the beginning. Jesus died on the cross for you and he died to defeat Satan. Jesus says in verse 31, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Again and again, Jesus said he has not come to judge the world but to give the world life. Yet we know, because we've been watching the gospel of John, that still means that he is judgment to the world because the ugliest parts of our world are coming out when Jesus is revealing the goodness of God's kingdom. Jesus did not come to judge the world. And yet the judgment of the world is let's execute him. The one who is life. Jesus is like the light that you flick on in your kitchen that reveals the cockroaches. They were always there. The light just revealed them to you. Some people got some cockroaches. Uh, Jesus has come to show who God is, but who gave us the lies about God first? Well, you got to go back to the story of Adam and Eve, which is another one that we often are familiar with but it tells the story of our world and how it should be a world where God gave over a beautiful creation that had nothing bad in it. And he told Adam and Eve, be fruitful, multiply, cultivate. He, in a sense, gave them rulership over the world. It's a world where if we were there today, we would never be having conversations about what God is like because God would be there with us. We would not be having conversations about how to live out the gospel because all of us would know nothing but the goodness of God. And yet, though God's first covenant promise to Adam was one of good, Adam's first covenant promise was to Satan. Because Satan came in to Eve and to Adam and said, is God really good? Well, just to be sure, why don't you define what good and evil is for yourself first? 
And so the deal was made. And so Adam and Eve got to define good and evil for themselves. And then Satan got to inject sin and death and corruption into the world. And every human being since that time has made the exact same deal. All of us before Christ have in our attempts at defining good and evil for yourselves have in a sense made a deal with the devil. That is why brokenness is in our world. That is why it is so hard for us to believe that God might really love us and really pursue us. Because we've been listening to the lies of Satan from the moment we got up in the morning until we got here. And he's going to keep trying to throw them at us until the day that we go to sleep again. Jesus came to defeat Satan. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Jesus did not just come to forgive us of our sins. He came to drag Satan off the fake throne that he made and destroy the power that kept us corrupted by him. Jesus came for you and died for you, but he also did so, he defeated Satan so that he would not have any power over this world and over you. Jesus says, now the ruler will be cast out. How? By dying. How can a death be a victory? Because if we were to go back in time, everybody watching would have been sure and easy to say that Jesus just lost. How could death be a beautiful victory? Again, this is actually a story that we all deep down know. My wife and I just went this last weekend to watch A Quiet Place Part 2. Not going to ruin it. But Quiet Place 1, that's, that's on you. You got that beautiful moment, which we all love and is familiar to us. You've got a world that is getting destroyed by these aliens, if you haven't seen it. And these aliens, they hunt by hearing only. And so the whole movie in, in the first one is terrifying because it's silent. And then there's that moment in the end where the children are in the truck and the aliens are ripping it apart and about to kill this man's children. And so what does the dad do? He stands outside. He looks at his daughter, who's deaf, and he signs to her. I love you. I have, oh, I thought I'd get this one. Okay. <laughs> I love you. I have always loved you. And then he starts screaming. And the aliens turn, come, and rip him apart so that his children might live. This is the story that we absolutely love. In Avengers Endgame, it is Tony Stark who snaps his fingers to defeat Thanos, but killing himself. It's Harry Potter, if you're a fan like me, where you, you think at the end that Voldemort's going to win when he goes to do that death curse on Harry, but in fact, he's actually destroying the evil within himself and can have victory. We have had thousands of years as a human race to tell stories. We can't tell a better one than this. 
We love it because at the fabric of reality is this story where good must win, but the only way we know that good is going to win in an evil world is if good will take on itself evil and die sacrificially in the process. This is the story of Jesus, amen? He has defeated Satan. You know how? Because when they put him on the cross and they nailed him to the wood, he was grabbing sin in his left hand, Satan and death in his right, and he put him on the cross with him to be dead forever so that we might have freedom. Jesus died. Jesus died for you. Not the person to your left, because I know that's what we all think. Jesus died for you. He loves you. He went to the cross to put to death the old age. Some of you know. All of us need to hear, all of you need to hear. Satan is not the ruler anymore in this world. He is not in charge anymore. When he comes up with lies, even today, and he tries to tell you who you are, that you're never gonna get better in your fight against sin, you turn to him, you spit in his face, and you say, you are not the ruler anymore. Jesus is. When he tries to tell you in your isolation that you're always going to be alone, you turn to him and say, no, you are not the ruler anymore. Jesus is the ruler. Jesus died to defeat Satan. Let us stop pretending as if that victory has not been sealed. The question is, why was it so worth it to Jesus to go to that pain? Think about it. Here is the light of the world, the embodiment of God, who has forever enjoyed the glory and love and relationship of the Father in heaven before. Trust me, he does not need to come to earth to get anything. Yet, he comes and he chooses to die. Why? For you. Jesus died to draw you to himself. What kind of death, Jesus says? You want to know what kind of death? A death to reveal God. To reveal who he truly is, the God who loves you. To reveal that he is the God who will defeat Satan's sin and death. And though we are co-partners in the enemy, he still comes to free us. And he does it so that he could draw all people to himself. Jesus says in verse 32, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Last example, Lord of the Rings, one of my favorites. In the story of the Lord of the Rings, Sam and Frodo are heading towards Mordor, and then they come upon that scary, terrifying spot, the Dead Marshes, which if you haven't seen, is this endless swamp of dead bodies from kings and wars from old ages. And they, as they're walking, they are tempted to follow the lights down into the water that will drown them and make them a part of the dead marshes. We all are in the dead marshes. 
The scriptures say, especially in Ephesians, that before Jesus, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Why would Jesus come out of heaven to get you? Why would Jesus step down and plunge himself into the dead marshes and forcefully inhale the water of death and drown himself in sin and Satan and death? Why? Because you were at the bottom of that marsh. And unless somebody went in to grab you and drag you out upon himself, we would stay there forever. Jesus died for you because he wanted you. He wanted you. And so he went down to drag you out. We are in Christ, the new humanity. Jesus says all people, all nations, all tribes, all tongues. He is the banner which unites everyone to himself in love. This is the beautiful thing about the church. I mean, again and again, I'm amazed at the people that Jesus brings together. And this is a example of what the kingdom is going to look like. A kingdom of all people who are together united under one blood, the blood of Jesus. We are the church and we are terrifying to Satan. Because he cannot touch that. The only thing that Satan can do at this point in history is make you wonder if all people includes you. All he can do now is make you wonder if all people could ever be someone as bitter and frustrated as you. All he can do is send the lie that maybe Jesus does not draw those who are broken and shame covered to himself. Maybe he doesn't draw those who are self-obsessed and constantly working for themselves to prove themselves. Maybe all people will not include me, but that is not true. Jesus says, I draw all people to myself. All. And so again, I would remind you that this truth that we have gotten so familiar with, that Jesus died for you. Do not think now that When that is said, it is talking about somebody next to you. Jesus died to draw you to himself. Why did Jesus die? To get you. What is the one message that we have been saying from Sunday school on? Jesus died for you. What's the one theology that... Pretty much the whole church agrees upon for all time that Jesus has died for you. Jesus died to love you. And so at this point, as we begin to take communion, I'll invite the band on stage. I want you to hold the bread and the wine in your hands, and I want you to know that we who take part in this meal, this celebratory reminding meal, we do so as a way to say, Jesus died for me. If, you, if, if that has not been made real, you've not accepted that, you're not sure of that, then just, I would, I would say, hold the communion at the side and then come to one of the pastors at the end and we'll pray for you. But for those of us who see the cross in all its horror and we go, that is beautiful. Take 
cracker and eat. This is the body of Christ that was given for you. And then open the cup. Take the wine and drink. This is Christ's blood shed for you. And now, Father, I pray. I pray that a truth so simple and so beautiful would not go unheard by us and that you would you protect our church from ever getting too familiar with the gospel. I pray that you would, for those in here, Lord, who need to be reminded of that truth and need to be just reminded of your love, Lord, that every bit of this service from the words and the scriptures, the songs would be a reminder that Jesus, you died for us. And so it's in your name that we're going to sing and worship and praise you. Amen.